0: Most of you do know. You're in Romans 3. Would you look at verse 21? Um, I'm not going to launch into reading the whole thing yet. It'll be on the screen. We can just hold it there. But would you look at verse number 21? But now. You see that? But now. That was the common word in all five scenarios. But now... These words, these two words represent a major, major shift in the book of Romans. Uh, You guys know that verse divisions and chapter divisions are not inspired. People added those. This is a very poor chapter break. This is a poor chapter break. It should have happened between verse 20 and 21. Verse 21 should have really started chapter 4, but it didn't because it's a whole new thing. Everything is changing from this point forward here. So here's what I want you to do. Those you know, of you that have been here for weeks and weeks, you know that for six or seven weeks we've been in this doom and gloom and darkness of how sinful mankind is and how justified God is in pouring out his wrath and because of his righteousness. And, and then all of a sudden Paul has finally worked his way through that and then it says, but now, and so we're, we're on the upswing. Now I realize I preached on this last week, and this will not be on the screen. So if you have have your Bible, like me, a paper copy, or if you have it on your phone, iPad, whatever it is, I actually want you to kind of look back. It's not going to be on the screen, so you either need to listen or kind of look over on somebody sitting beside you, so maybe you want to share. I want to go back to get the the momentum leading up to to really get the context of verse 21. But now I want us to go back and read up to there from verse 9. So let's do that by way of introduction. Paul asks the question, now, here's where he's at. He's, he's brought all this evidence against, you know, mankind, the immoral, godless person, doesn't want anything to do with God. Wow, there's all that evidence. They're definitely guilty. Then you got the, the pretty moral people, but, you know, they're way better than them, but they're still not righteous enough. And then he brings even the moral people who are religious, so he kind of brings the evidence against them. He's a prosecuting attorney and ultimately even brings in his own Jewish people, and he brings all the evidence against them. And as we looked at last week, verses 9 through 20 we saw the verdict of God and here kind of see Paul wrapping up his case against mankind and again this is a gloomy dark section but I want to read it again, verse number 9 what then? are we Jews any better off? at the end of the day we do have advantages are we any, any better off at the end of the day? no, not at all for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He doesn't just say Jews and Greeks have sinned. He's saying all the world is under the authority of sin. We obey sin. It's our master. As it is written, and here's the verdict. Here's, Paul doesn't have to come up and wonder what God would say. He pulls verses from the Old Testament that God has already spoken about mankind. And we say that mankind is uni- universally wicked based off of God's verdict toward us. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. None are brought into this world in a right standing with God. We're all born with a sinful nature. We're born in sin. No, not one. No one, no one understands. No one really understands God or spiritual things left to themselves. No one seeks for God. The only true religion is when God comes and seeks us. Verse 12. All have turned aside, They've got off track or gone directly the opposite way. Together they become worthless, useless, not performing what we were created to do. Sin led us into a worthless, useless stage. And no one does good, not even one. Verse 11 and 12, our character. Our character is condemned. Verse 13 and 14, our conversation is condemned. And we noted that this works itself up from the heart. You can see the direction of the parts that have to do with speech and our, our, you know, biological body he works from the heart out upward their throat is an open grave so the heart is corrupt and full of deadly poison and just deadness and corrupt so when we open our throat it's just venting all of that deadness our words give us away they use their tongues here's god's verdict god's verdict they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Okay, our conversation is corrupt. And then lastly, we looked at verse 15 to 18. Our whole conduct is corrupt. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We've talked about the fear of God. We we may believe, mankind may believe, yeah, God's out there and he kind of sees and he gets reports. No, fear of God is God is right here. I'm going to give an account. He's literally watching what I'm doing and he sees my very heart. And then we kind of concluded, Paul did, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And by the way, everyone who's ever been born is under some version of God's law, either you have had a copy of the Bible and been able to read it. You say, well, what about the people who don't have a copy of the Bible have never read it? They still have God's law stamped on their being, on their, their, their spiritual DNA. It's, it's stamped on them. So whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every, we get a picture of the judgment, every mouth may be stopped. No one on the day of judgment is going to be defending themselves because we're all guilty, as verse 19 concludes, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And in verse 20 is key. Watch it, listen carefully if you don't have a a Bible in front of you. For by works of the law, by keeping God's rules and commandments, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law is not how you get saved. You don't, you don't get justified and in a right standing with God by doing the things that the Old Testament law says to do. It just doesn't work. And now our text today. Next six verses, this is our text. We're going to read verse 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. Read that verse again. But now, if I could say, you know what I actually wrote in my Bible? I wrote A.D. 56, right above the words, but now... So Paul's been dealing with God's record in the Psalms and Isaiah and what God has to say about mankind and keeping the law will never save us. But verse 21, but now from A.D. 56, really A.D. 28 or so onward, well, things have definitely changed. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, hear this well, the righteousness of God through faith. You can't get saved by keeping the law, but now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. He put Him out front to be seen, very clearly seen. Whom God put forward as a propitiation By his blood to be received by faith. This, putting Christ forward as a propitiation, this was to show God's righteousness. Four times you'll see righteousness of God or God's righteousness in these six verses. Here's one. Putting Christ forward as a propitiation... By his blood, why, why did that happen? This was to show God's righteousness because, here's why, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's why he put him forward because people may have been getting the wrong message about God, my words there. So now he sets forth Christ as a propitiation for sin because to show that God's righteousness because... Of his divine forbearance he had been passing over former sins. And then the last reason given why he puts Christ forward. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just. God will be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the result of putting Christ forward as propitiation is That it allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want you to notice three thoughts with me today from our text. It's all hovering around the righteousness of God as you see in your handout. Number one, we see the revelation of the righteousness of God. And we hear that and we say, okay, Brother Jeff, can you please just remind me what is God's righteousness? If I could just say it clearly in the most simple way, here it is. God always, always, always does what is right. Mark that in your head all day long. God always, 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 always does what is right. You say, but what if when it doesn't look like, no, no, God always does what is right. You say, what if I don't think God, no, God always does what is right. You need to adjust your thinking because mark it now, God always does what is right. How do we know this? Number one, it was revealed in the Old Testament. Number one, revealed in the Old Testament. The revelation of the righteousness of God's first of all revealed in the Old Testament, particularly the law section. How do we know? Because as we read the, the law of God, we, we start learning the nature of God, we learn what God likes. God, I hope you guys read, don't ever get to a point in your Christianity where you're like, well, I'm not going to read the Old Testament anymore. It's kind of useless. Keep reading the Old Testament. Here's why. You'll learn the nature of God. You'll learn what God likes. You'll learn what he doesn't like. Watch this. You'll learn what he not only dislikes, you'll learn what he can't tolerate. They cannot go to heaven because God can't tolerate that in heaven. You will learn what God must judge. God has to. God has to. It's very clear because the righteousness of God is revealed all through the Old Testament. It's there. Now, here's the problem. Not only is the Old Testament really good at revealing the righteousness of God, it's really good at condemning us because all we have to do is look at Ten Commandments and we realize that you, 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 me, we can't go one day, not one day, reading the Ten Commandments and say, I'm going to keep these all in my heart today. You can't do it one day, not one day. So it's good at condemning us, but it's good at making God look righteous. Wow, God is really holy. God never does the wrong thing. God always does the right thing. He's in his own category. Yeah, the Old Testament makes that very clear. But it condemns us how badly. Look at the end. By the way, I'm not going to go just chronological or just, you know, Top to bottom through the verses today, we're going to step back and we're going to pull themes rather than just going line by line, verse by verse, you know, working all of verse 21 and finishing verse 26. We're going to get the gist and the dynamic of these six verses. Look at verse 22. Look at the end of it. Here's what the Bible says. So let's adjust our thinking to what the Bible says because this will be an adjustment. I'm telling you, it's an adjustment. Here's what, here's what God says For there is no distinction. Somebody give me another word for distinction. There's no distinction. There's no no difference. That's what God says. Believe that. Why? Because God says it. You say, but my mind says there is a difference. Verse 22, flowing into verse 23, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. Now, we step back and say, hey, Paul, you're a hypocrite. There's a distinction between Jew and Gentile. In a sense, but in another sense, there's no distinction. All right, let's bring it to America. Let's bring it to this morning. If I were talking with you, would you make a distinction? Over here is a person who killed someone. Literally cold-blooded, thought about it, saw the opportunity, looked left and right, plan worked perfectly, murdered the person. They are a murderer. Now, over here is a person who hates someone. They hate them. And it wouldn't bother them if they were murdered. But they withhold. They restrain. They don't kill them. Do you guys see a difference? You see the difference, right? I see a difference. I sure do. You actually did it. You wanted to do it. But you had some self-control. And you need to work on your anger problems. You need to, by the Old Testament law, you need to be put to death. You took someone's life. Life for life. Is there a difference? Help me out. Is there a difference? Here's a person who's made a vow with someone and said, until death do us part, I'm going to be faithful to you and you only. But they actually had sexual, physical relations with someone they're not married to. Now, over here is someone who has lustful thoughts towards someone, but they didn't ever actually physically act on them. Do you guys see a difference? Is there a difference? I see a difference. Man, we've got to work on this. But man, you can't just act out what you thought and felt. Maybe another one. Black, black, gray. Is there a difference? But with God, you know what God says? And by the way, I'm with you on all of that. I see a definite difference between Charles Manson and the rest of the Americans, I just do. The guy was a murderer, psycho, and he led other people into committing acts of murder. I mean, a horrific person. I look and say, no, come on, Charles Manson is worse. What God says is this. There is a distinction and a difference in degree, but not in effect. There's no distinction. Oh, there's differences in degree, they acted it out, you just thought it and wanted to do it, they did it. There's difference in degree, but the effect is, oh, there's black and there's gray, but answer it for me. Neither are white. You see that? So verse 23, look at it very quickly. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This covers past and present. Watch. All have sinned. All have committed acts of sin. All fall short. That's current. All are falling short. All have sinned. All are falling short. I want to go back to the illustration we borrowed from John MacArthur last week. You ready? Here it is. There's these South Pacific Islands. Okay. The task is to jump you have to jump here's the assignment you want to go to heaven you have to jump from the South Pacific Islands to the United States and I gave you options you can go that way to California you can go this way across I'm assuming it's across Africa or southern part of Europe and maybe land in Florida so either way you've got thousands of miles to go that's the task in that analogy what does this distance to be jumped stand for because here's the thing again some people can jump 25 feet give them a run you know, long jumpers, give them a run. They run, they jump, they put their feet out there, they land in the sand, check them, 25 feet. Some go 20 feet, some go 15, some go five. The bottom line, here we are way up here in the, in the satellite and we see these kind of curve of the earth somehow we're able to see there. And over here is America and we watch them jump and it's literally like nothing has even happened. What does this distance represent? Theologians debate over what Romans 3.23 is talking about. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the question. What is the glory of God? Does it mean that we as people fall short of being just like God? So our glory is not God's glory. And so, man, we try and we try, but we just don't get far at all. So we fall short. Is that it? Maybe. Maybe. But if that's the test, then I have to step back and ask myself, but what about the angels that haven't fallen and they are able to live in heaven? They, are, they don't have the glory of God either, and yet they're able to live in heaven. So maybe I'm wondering, is the distance, does this represent the distance to be jumped, represents a, a, a minimum standard that God requires of a person to live with him forever in heaven? You know what the Bible says? Either way you look at it, we all fall short woefully short. I don't want you to get the idea. Please don't get the idea. Okay, I got it, I got it. God requires a hundred on the test and some people make a thirty and others make a fifty and some make an eighty and a few make a ninety and in those elite sweet grandma, she made a ninety-nine point five and God is strict and he doesn't round up. Okay, I got it. Don't think that way. Here's what I want you to understand. It's not like We aimed at the target with our arrow and we just missed outside the black. No, what it's saying is we don't hit the target at all because we aim the other direction. It's not that we made a 30 or a 50 and we failed. It means we don't have any points and then we have negative points. Does that kind of make sense? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But secondly, write this down under the first point, the Revelation of the righteousness of God. His righteousness is revealed apart from the Old Testament. So it's revealed through the Old Testament. Well, God really is holy. We're not. That makes him look really good. That reveals his righteousness. But then there's a righteousness apart from the Old Testament. Look at verse 21 again. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because keeping the law will not save you, verse 20. But listen, there's still hope. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This one's a little tricky. There's the righteousness of God. Follow, follow me. There's the righteousness of God. I thought maybe the best way to do it. If I were to say, that's Miss Smith's pound cake. That's Spitz, Mrs. Smith's pound cake. What does that mean? That means that's Mrs. Smith's, and you better keep your hands off, right? That's Miss Smith's pound cake. Or it could mean, hey, guys, listen, that's Miss Smith's pound cake. Oh, okay, she brought it for us, right? She brought it to share with us. Do you see the difference? I use the same phrase, that's Miss Smith's pound cake. It could mean that's hers and hers only, or it could mean that's hers that she's going to share with us. How could we apply that to the text? We're talking about the righteousness of God. The Old Testament is showing us the the personal righteousness of God. Look, wow, God personally is very righteous. That's his and his only. But can it also, what Paul is saying is, there's another meaning. Here it comes. Not just his personal righteousness, but his righteousness provided righteousness the very title of today's message God's provided righteousness not only righteousness of God wow look how holy he is righteousness from God that's the question is there a righteousness from God option yes there is verse 21 one more time but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law You say, so the law is kind of against whatever this other way. No, it's not against. There's no opposition. Because he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I'm going to propose to you, here's what's happening with Paul. He's saying, if you read the Old Testament, all along the way, God was showing us that he accepts substitution as a way to pay sin's penalty. It was there all along. It's not that the Old Testament looks at the New Testament and is jealous or angry or you've undermined. The Old Testament, if it could talk, which it does, could talk to the New Testament, it would say, yes, you're doing exactly what you were supposed to do. I've pointed to you all along the way and now you are fulfilling the message. So the law and the prophets were pointing toward this substitution God accepts substitution because there's this gap between us we can never have the righteousness of God but can we get righteousness from God how do we see it in the Old Testament well the law constantly as I've I've been reading it now I'm in the Old Testament my, my devotion time the law is constantly calling for sacrifices killing of animals lambs rams goats bulls calves constantly I thought this morning, would it have been hundreds, do you think it would have been hundreds of thousands of animals that would have been killed in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple? Do you think literally hundreds of thousands? I think not. I think millions. If you think about it, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there would have been many, many sacrifices, thousands per year, hundreds and hundreds, millions of animals would have been killed. Why? What's going on with that? Are those animals being killed, saving people from their sins? No, they're not. They were symbolically pointing to the Lamb of God that was to come the whole time. It was there all the, the Old Testament is not jealous of the message of Paul. Paul is saying it was there, shouting, pointing the whole time. But now, as of AD 56, when he writes the book of Romans, I have a new message for you. You say, Well, what about the prophets? Would you look at you sang it a while ago, actually? I don't know if you knew you were singing this or not. Look at Isaiah 53. This is just a portion of the passage. This was in two different songs we sang this morning. Isaiah 53, verse number 4. There's this servant, Isaiah, six, seven hundred years before Christ comes. He's writing about this servant. He's prophetically seeing the future and he's writing it so clearly that it's going to happen. He's writing it as if it was past tense already. Verse 4. Surely, here comes the substitution. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. And I'll go ahead and tell you. The rabbis. Jewish rabbis have really struggled with that. Is this, who is this suffering servant? Is this Isaiah? That doesn't fit. Is the suffering servant Israel? That doesn't fit. Who is this? And this is one of the key passages. That keep the Jewish people by and large. Other than a, a select remnant keeps them from receiving Jesus as their Savior. They don't know who this suffering servant is. But to those of us who have received Christ, they're like, wow, that is so clear. Verse 4. Surely he, so all along the prophets and the law were pointing toward what the New Testament's going to declare very clearly. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Well, wow, look what's happening to him. Afflicted. But he was pierced, I mean, through the body for our transgressions. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the discipline that brought us peace. He's chastised, we have peace because of it. With his wounds, we're healed. So he's hurt, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I want to do it my way. And the, so what What God do? Because we want to do our way. Well, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's substitution. So the, the, New, the Old Testament is not jealous. It's not offended by the New Testament. Here's what I'm going to propose to you. Paul says in Romans 3. I'm going back there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. A while ago I told you, don't stop reading the Old Testament. I want to tell you something. No one in this building, no one in this building, and I know several of you, no one in this building loves what we call the Old Testament more than Paul did. It's the Word of God. It's the pure Word of God, the genuine Word of God. It enlightens the eyes. He loved it. He loved. It's the word of God. You can sense, though, as Paul gets to verse 21, as he's been laying out what the law says, you sense verse 21, his excitement, because he very unashamedly says, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm going to tell you grace for you. The New Testament is just better than the old one. It's better. And I know some hear that and go, ah, the, the Bible's the Bible. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's all God's word, but the New Testament is just better than the old. You say, how could you? That's blasphemous. We need an elders meeting after the church and we're going to have to talk with the preacher. What's going on? Why would he make such a statement? Why can you say the new is, can I add the word here, even better than the old. Why? Why? Because it fulfills what the old was pointing to all the time. Why? Because it's more clear than the Old Testament. There are things in the Old Testament, they were there, but they were mysteries. They were hidden. It just wasn't clear. Like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, New Testament. It's like, whoa, 300 prophecies about Jesus. This is awesome. wasn't real clear when it was happening. It's really clear after the fact. By the way, why is it better? It's more inclusive than the Old Testament. Watch this. The Old shows that God is so righteous, no one with sin can live in heaven, but get this. The New says, oh, but by the way, he's so righteous that if he dies on a cross to pay for sin, then everybody that's ever lived can go to heaven because he's so righteous. Did you catch that? That's better. He's Old Testament. He's so good. You can't have any sin. The New Testament says, yeah, but he's so good, he can deal with sin. It's better. And that's what I sense when I read verse twenty. But now, let me get where I really wanted to get to, Paul says. And these are the six verses. Very quickly, number two. We see the revelation of the righteousness of God. Number two, the requirements of the righteousness of God. Okay, he's really, really holy. He has personal righteousness. Well, that's going to make some demands and some things are going to have to happen because of it. Again, not to use too many sports analogies, you guys know I like sports. A lot of us in the room, we watched, I was able to watch one, I was on the road, I was listening to the other one, a ball game last night. Have you ever noticed, some of you that are my age or older, I I think I started watching sports I think when I was seven, six, seven years old, aren't the games a lot better to watch now? They have so many camera angles. In fact, they're able at certain points in the game to go and talk. Now, it does slow the game down. It gets way too long. But they can take these four and five camera angles, put them all together, and you can really get a better perspective of what's happening. You watch a movie, and and, boy, they did some great things in Twilight Zone, but now, right? Now, it's like you do all these different angles, and they're cutting away, and it's like... Man, how do they do that? Because you think I would have saw that camera guy over there, but somebody's just outside, and they got like four cameras in there. It just gives a good full perspective. You're like, okay, that's great. What does it have to do with the message? God gives us these words that describe what Jesus did in relation to our salvation. I'm going to use the word salvation, that if we... Know what these words say, they will give us a better understanding of what happened the moment of salvation. So here it comes. You ready? God gives us words. And by the way, I have a little saying, words mean things. So we need to learn the meaning of words. Especially the Bible. Please, guys, let's don't just like read your, you know, got your time with the Lord and you're reading through. Don't know what that means. Don't know don't what that means. Oh, I'm just keep on reading. Stop. Now, I've read six verses as our text today be honest, don't be ashamed you can kind of maybe put it right there did we have any words in today's text any words whatsoever that you're like I don't know that I know what that word means anybody there? Well, kind of just a few, just, anybody? like I don't really God gives us these words that are like give us a fuller perspective of what happened at salvation now let me give a tip because I want some of you to help us out I know I'm being recorded it Sunday sunny morning we should be probably a little more formal than this but I'm a teacher at heart so I want to hear from you there's like five theological, and you're like, oh, no, we're getting ready to do theology. It's okay. It's good for us. Let's learn the meaning of these things. There's like five theological words that have to do with salvation. So salvation's the big heading, but there's these other words that kind of tell what happened in salvation. So we get a better appreciation, just kind of a, a word picture. Four of the ones that we're going to briefly touch on, we really want to spend time on three, but four of them start with the letters RE. And some of you right now are thinking, oh, okay, I know one of them or two. Somebody give me one. Redemption. I heard that one. Uh, the resurrection has to do with Christ, which makes it definitely possible. Restraint. Uh, that is one. Uh, that's an effect. Say it louder. Reconciliation. Have you ever heard that word? You ever read that in your devotions? So we have redemption. We have reconciliation. We have re. re redemption's been said. Rege- Regeneration, we have remission, and the one that's all through this text starts with the letter J. Justification. We don't have time to hit them all, but let let me throw it out there. Look them up. They mean things. So the next time you're reading, you're like, I know what that means. Stop and think about, wow, that is what the Lord did. Like regeneration last week. And they're here this morning. Right back here after service. I was able to tell three folks that received the Lord as their Savior, that when they walked in, they had a body and a soul that was awake and aware, but their spirit was dead. And what happens in regeneration is, you're born not just physically, you're born again. That's where your spirit comes to life. It's called regeneration. There's another one that's actually implied in our text, but it's not stated very clearly. It's reconciliation. You say, what's reconciliation? That's where you and your sin are in a battle, having a fight against God and His holiness. Who's going to win that? Who's going to win? God's going to win every time. You're getting beat down. You're going to lose. You're going to be crushed. But here comes Jesus and jumps between... Both of you in the fight. And so what happens? Mankind just lashes out and crucifies Jesus. God the Father, because Jesus becomes sin, pours out his wrath on Jesus. And so Jesus is the great peacemaker who jumps between the two warring parties, me and God, you and God. And he becomes the reconciler. And so as the end result, after both God and us, we beat up Christ and he gets wounded. Hey, well, now we get to get along because I'm now your child through that. What does the word redemption mean? Look at verse 24. You have a note or two on the next one. Look at verse 24. And we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Don't answer out loud, but just think, do I know what redemption means? Let's talk briefly about this one. Redemption is the doctrine that carries the idea, listen, of delivering someone. So when I say someone needs delivered, we're immediately thinking, okay, so they need delivered. They're being bound or they're captive or they're in some kind of bondage. Absolutely. They, they may be at gunpoint. Someone has them at gunpoint. Or they may be in a cell or in a room or in a trunk of a car or down in a basement or in a shack way out in an abandoned property. What is that? They're captive. So what's going on here? The doctrine of redemption carries the idea of delivering someone by valuing them. You value that person to the point that you're willing to pay a price to free them. It's pictured in a captive being. Ransomed? Hey, I got you. I got you. Whoever it is, I got your loved one, and I'm demanding so much money. Okay, you place so much value on that person, I'll pay the price, and you get whatever we think dollars. You get your dollars, and you give it to the person and ransom and deliver. Why? Because you value that person. That's what happened in salvation. It's pictured in ransoming a captive from his captors. It's also really more so in the Bible pictured as paying the price to free a slave. So here's a slave, and as soon as you have time to write that, I think we've got a little artist rendering of a couple of Roman slaves. See the picture? So it's paying a price. See these two guys? It's just an artist's rendering. So they're up there. They're bound. Here's a picture of salvation. We had a master, guys. We're born in this world. Sin was our master. It owned us. We obeyed. But the Lord Jesus Christ pays a price to deliver us from our slavery, not just to put us in another you know, awful kind of bondage because sin had ill intentions for us, but God pays a high price to deliver us from bondage. And by the way, here's a kicker. This is a whole other message. Once you become a Christian, you no longer have to sin. Now, here's what I find. Sin is such a stubborn old master, it still tries to boss me around, but I don't have to obey. Neither do you. So what is Redemption. God valued you so much that he paid a price to deliver you. The next two I want to touch together, and that's justification and remission, because they're implied together, justification and remission. What's going on here? I include remission with this because remission is what actually one of the parts that makes justification possible. You say, I've heard this word remission. All right, help me out. If cancer is in remission, is that good or bad? That's good because what's happening to the cancer? A person has cancer. Good news, the cancer's in remission. It is what? What's happening to the cancer? It's shrinking. It's going away. So I know this is a theological section. I'm going to use my notes. God is light, but something has come between me and God. And for me to have a relationship with God, for me to be saved, this has to be removed. What is this? sin has to be removed that means my sins are remitted now i'm able to have a relationship with god you say so so remission of sins in the old testament says without shedding of blood there is no remission so here it is again regeneration i'm dead in my in my sins i have my spirit's dead and god makes me come alive a full person body soul and spirit reconciliation I was at war with God Jesus jumps between as the great peacemaker and now God and I are in a great relationship redemption I'm a slave I'm captive he frees me remission sin is between me and the Lord but God removes the sin allowing for justification very quickly what is justification let's write this down did we already write the remission yes sin is the putting away, uh, remission is the putting away of sin since it created a barrier to God so that has to be removed out of the way so we say, then what in the world is justification? I'll talk about this one for just a few moments. Maybe about five minutes because this one's the key of the next section and the next chapter or so, really chapters. This is the big one. Justification deals with how God sees us as Righteous. He said, but we're not righteous. You just preached a long message last week on how we're not righteous. I understand. Justification deals with how God sees us as righteous. So righteous that we're able to enter into in heaven, into, into his heaven. One of the key things is to understand, this is very important, justification does not mean that God makes me righteous in 1979. I got saved in 1979. Justification doesn't mean God made me righteous. You say, well, didn't he make you Righteous. There's a process, once a person's saved, God's Holy Spirit comes in that person and from the time they're saved until the time they die, he will be making them righteous. They'll not be the same. Help me out, what's that process called? Sanctification. Salvation's a one-time event. Sanctification is a process that flows from, it's a guaranteed process, flows from salvation. So he's going to make us, by the way, what happens after death? What I talked about earlier. We go to heaven. We get rid of the sin nature. We are, that's called, starts with a G. Glorification. Now I really am made righteous. You say, so what happens at the moment of salvation? Justification happens, which allows God to see us as righteous. You say, so he doesn't actually make us righteous at that moment? No, justification, if you want to write this down. Instead, what it means is be, to be declared righteous. To be treated righteous as righteous so God the righteous judge through justification is able to declare I declare you righteous haven't made you righteous yet but I am declaring you righteous I'm going to treat you as right as if you have always done what is right God always does what is right he's going to treat us as if we have always done what is right or the word good western North Carolina word reckoned us as righteous I'm going to reckon you I reckon you as if you were righteous kind of carries a couple of ideas I hope this uh, note's on the same screen, hopefully, because I'm going to go quicker. Justification has a dual idea. Number one, it's forgiving our sins and sinfulness. That's one part of it. It's a dual action of God. God, forget, that's that remission. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to move it out of the way. Your sin and your sinfulness, that's two different things. You commit sins because you are sinful. I'm going to remove all of that from counting against you. But that's not all. Something else happens in justification. There's the imputing IMPUTING. There's the imputing of the righteousness of Christ to our account. On the other hand, so on one hand, I'm going to forgive your sin and your sinfulness, on the other hand, I'm going to impute the righteousness of God. I'm doing a lot of feedback today, so feel free to say it out loud. What kind of job do you have if you regularly use the word imputing? You're an starts with an A. You're an accountant. So in other words, yeah, this person has this in this category, this fund, but we're going to take it out of there and we're going to impute it into this account because they need it. They have extra or they're making a payment, so we're taking out of here, we're imputing it into this account. It's an accounting term. So again, we hear imputing. Uh, don't think dollars for a second. Don't think dollars. Catch this. Think spiritual credits. Think righteousness. This is what justification's about. You say, "Oh yeah." Accountants use the word justified too. They do. This has to be has to justify this. Everything has to balance. If you're off one cent, it drives them crazy. Oh, we can't close out the year. We're off three cents. Well, I'll just. You pitch in three... No, now that means we've got to record you giving three cents. It's really bad. I'm glad I'm not an accountant. Really. Imputing. An accountant's term. So instead of dollars, let's think of it this way. Imputing righteousness. Imputing spiritual credits. So we use the analogy... I think we have a photo. Look at this photo. Here it is. See it? Scales. Here's the picture. Here's what happens in justification. In justification... It's as though we're going at you. By the way, you have to make this very personal right now. Make this very personal. Here it comes. You will stand before God, and it's as though there'll be a set of scales. And here's what's going to happen. The law of God, with its 613 commandments, will be placed on one side of the scale. What's going to happen to the scale? What's going to Heavy. The law is heavy handed. 613 commandments, by the way, you have broken it all to pieces today in your thought life. Now, you want to go to heaven. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. So the the tablets, the tablets of the law are heavy over here. So if you want to go to heaven, here's what has to happen. You have to jump on the other side with all your righteousness. So you got to get all your good deeds together and jump up on the other side. You say, what happens? You and all of your righteousness jumping on the other side with the law weighing down over here, it literally doesn't even acknowledge that you, but I'm jumping. It doesn't even acknowledge that you've jumped on the scale. Why? Look at Isaiah 64, verse 6. Look at, Isaiah 60, look at this verse. Watch it carefully. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We have all, Did I read that correctly? Yes, I did. What if I were to read it this way? We've all become like one who is unclean and all our sinful deeds are like a polluted garment. That's not how it's read. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. By the way, the King James says, like, like what? what kind of rags? Filthy rags since we're a mixed company i will not tell you what the filthy rags represent it isn't good that's our righteousness that's the day you prayed more than any other day that's the day you read your bible that's the day you went to church that's the day you gave the most you ever gave at church that's the day you went out and told two or three people about jesus and they got saved that's the day you were you really nice to everybody That's your best. So here, I'm going to get all my righteousness going to jump on. And the scale doesn't acknowledge it. What I'm about to say is probably as important as anything that's said in any part of this message. Literally what I'm about to say, if there's a person who is right now on their way to hell, if they will hear what I'm saying, understand it, and act on it, literally, while I'm preaching, your eternal destiny could change. Because here's the beautiful part of justification. The beautiful part of justification is here's the scale in God's judgment. The law is here. You're, the scale's up there, you and all your righteousness, but you don't have any righteousness. Here it comes. If invited, Jesus Christ will step on the scale with you and impute all of his righteousness on your side. God the Father will see his righteousness. He will no longer see your sin. He will see you in Christ. And the scale will do that. Jesus this morning is offering to someone in this room. I see you have a righteousness issue. I have righteousness and to spare. If you invite me, I'll get on the scale and you'll balance out, and you will go to heaven. You have to invite me on the scale. That means if you're listening to that right now and say, okay, if I believe what this is saying, I can like right now say, God, I'm a sinner. I don't have any righteousness. Jesus, since what you did on the cross, apparently paid for all that, I'm inviting you. I need your righteousness to wrap around me and cover up all my unrighteousness. He'll do it right now, right now. Look at verse 24 quickly. And are justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift, as a gift, grace as a gift. Alva J. McLean says that phrase as a gift, here's what it means justified without a cause. It means justified for nothing. I, I told the Lord this morning, Lord, I need grace for nothing. God, I need grace without a cause. If I give you something because you give me $100, then I gave it to you for $100 or because you gave me $100. You know what God is saying? I offer you salvation without a cause. I offer you salvation for nothing. That's grace. That's what what happened to me at nine years old. I'm like, Lord, I I don't have any righteousness. I just need all your righteousness. I didn't word it that way, but that's what was happening in my simple little mind. That's it. God, I I just need grace for nothing. I need it to be without a cause. And God says, well, that's grace. That's what I do. I give it without a cause. I give it for nothing. The third point is much shorter, but before we hit that, look at verse 26. By the way, you have a note. As a gift, by His grace, our salvation is free, but it's not cheap, as you'll see. It's free, but it's not cheap. Verse 26. Whom? I'm sorry, verse 26 putting Christ forward as a propitiation was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Just and the justifier, this is key. We're still talking about justification, This will be the last part of it, ready? God is holy, so when he says something, it has to happen. But God is loving, and these two seem like they're going to collide. God is holy, so no sin can get into heaven. But God loves sinners and wants them to go to heaven and we're going to add to that God is ambitious and God is all powerful uh oh we've got something working here God is holy he can't have any sin in heaven but God loves sinners and wants them to live with him forever in heaven and he's really ambitious wanting that but he can't compromise his holiness if he does the angels are going to be whispering in little circles, saying he can't really do that what are you saying? Oh, I was just uh, say, speak your mind well, Lord, I'm just saying, you can't let them in. They've sinned. If you let them in, you're not holy. You said that the one that sins has to have their sin paid for. They have to go to hell. You can't bring them in here. Yeah, but I want to I be the justifier. I want to be, be able to declare people righteous. That's wonderful, Lord, and far be it from me. You're the, you're the one in charge. But if you do that, you're no longer holy. Just say it. God's answer is, I hear you but I'm all wise, all powerful, and I'm pretty ambitious, and I'm still loving, and I've got a plan. I am going to justify people. I'm going to declare them righteous, and I will still be declared righteous when I finish the process. No one will be able to say I cheated, or went back on my word, or gave a big do-over. Well, what, what can you possibly do? With the New Testament. Jesus came and died on a cross. What made it all possible? verse 25 made it possible whom God put forward Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins that's the hardest one in the whole thing right I'm not going to put you on the test I'm not going to have you raise your hand I know a few of you know what propitiation means but most would not you say okay what is propitiation would you write this down Propitiation speaks of a sacrifice or an offering. You've got to offer a sacrifice to the gods? No, to God. It speaks of a sacrifice or an offering that is made to appease or satisfy the deep wrath of God because he is angry at sin. And I realize a lot of people don't like to envision God. I don't like to think of God as an angry God. So a lot of people water down the doctrine of propitiation. Well, the Bible doesn't. It magnifies it. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you, listen carefully, God is far angrier at sin than we ever will know. God is far angrier at sin. 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. I'm not going to hit all of his introductory points. I'm going to give you a few. you like, I've heard of that sermon. Edwards gave these as his introductory points. Here they come. He says, there is no lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Not only can he do it, but he can do it most easily. None can stop him. Number two, they deserve to be cast into hell. Even now, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Oh, how we underestimate the stench of sin. Number three, they are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They are bound over hell already. He preached it like there's hell and this person is literally hanging over hell and there's a little thread called physical life. But the moment the soul and spirit lead that person, they will go to hell. They're hanging right now. I'm going to skip four, number five. The devil stands ready to seize the lost as soon as God removes his hand of restraint. A sixth one, this is important. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. I don't see any, death doesn't seem imminent. I'm just going to finish out the service here. I'm going to hop in my my car and we're going to go to the restaurant. I don't really need to worry about this. Death isn't imminent. Oh, really? I talked to a man two days ago. No, yesterday morning, whose wife, when he was 32, had an aneurysm, died instantly. 32 years old. He'd only been married seven years. Well, I don't really see any way I could physically die. Don't take comfort in that. God is way angrier at sin than we give him credit for. He's so wrathful that God says, I will only forgive sin if the highest most dear, most valuable sacrifice is made and there's only one thing I'll take to pay for a world's sin and that's the death of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25 quickly. Here's key. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sins. Why did God put forward Jesus at that time? Because, listen carefully, it looked like God was okay with sin. He's not doing anything. Thousands of years. Yeah, he keeps saying he's huffing and puffing, but he's not really doing anything on a major scale. God apparently is okay with sin. God says, to show you that I am serious about dealing with sin, he puts forth his son and he has him die on a cross. That's how serious God is about dealing with sin. He will even kill his own son on a cross because that's the only acceptable solution for sin so today guys you got two choices it's pretty simple every person who's ever lived counting you and i our sins will be paid for and god's wrath against sin will be appeased either by you paying for your sins forever in hell and eventually the lake of fire paying for your own sins to appease the wrath of god or you can take the appeasement the sacrifice of christ on the cross that's already paid for your sin and say, I want that to count for mine. I don't want to go to hell. There's your choices. I think it's a real easy choice. Verse 25 had another phrase, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You're like, yeah, you Baptists, y'all talk a lot about blood. We do because the blood of Christ is the key to redemption. It was the price paid. It's the key to remission. It is the cleansing agent. It's the key to propitiation. His blood is the sacrificial appeasement of the wrath of God. Lastly, and very quickly, I promise this will be quick, receiving the righteousness of God. Would you just let me read verse 22, verse 25, 26. You guys tell me what's the common word. Ready? I'm going to read it. Just listen. Try to pick the common word. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. What's the phrase? What's the word? Faith, faith, faith. I don't know why it is. But we've done this before. Provided righteousness. There's righteousness. Don't think of it as a dollar. Provided righteousness by faith. i want to give it to you. For some reason, that exchange is the hardest thing for people to understand. To receive righteousness by faith it's really really hard some people are like I'm not bad enough that I need righteousness given to me I have plenty of my own others are like I'm so bad it can't be that simple I don't even know if he could ever save me but if he does surely I have to do something to earn it it's amazing people want to know how to go to heaven but when you look at these six verses and hear that it's, it's by faith I don't want that I almost wish I could believe for the person. Here's what I find. Once a person experiences salvation, they step back and go, it, that was really the easiest thing in the world. Oh, it is. But until you get it, it's like the hardest thing. But, but how do you have faith? It doesn't make sense. I don't even know how. I hear you guys talk about just receiving the salvation by faith. That's, is this is it. You will save me? Okay, well, I'm asking you to save me right now and I I'm, I'm want it right now. I, I receive it right now. Okay okay, well, okay, well, okay, 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 I wish I could believe for everybody in here, but I can do this, write these down, saving faith is always in Jesus, that's what the Bible teaches, it's always in Jesus, do you know the main thing about your faith is not how much faith or how big your faith, it's who is your faith in? Somebody puts like fast batteries in that clock. Like really fast batteries. It runs on double time, I think. And some of you are like, no, I think it runs on half time. It's like, it's like. Uh, if I were to ask you right now, first thought, first thought. Why will you go to heaven? What are you trusting? What do you have faith in? Think it. What are you trusting Right now, if you and I went in Quincy's office back here and said, hey, you heard the little exercise this morning, the little thing I threw out. What's your answer? If the word baptism came in your th- brain, you might be in trouble. If you had the word church, I didn't ask where or when, I said, what are you trusting? If the word church came in your thought, you might be in trouble. If yours. Well, I have done, I'm going to shock you right here. You ready? If when I said that, you're, you thought, what am I trusting? I recited a prayer with you, Jeff. Then you're trusting a prayer. A prayer will not get you to heaven. You have to trust Jesus. You pray a prayer because you trust Jesus. That's all it is. Saving faith is always in Jesus. We're never told to trust anything else. Do you trust Jesus? And if you're sitting there going right now, now you just messed up my little theology. Well, it needed messed up. Second thing, man, I keep saying quickly, all who believe in Jesus will be saved. All who believe in Jesus. It's very clear in verse 22. It's for all. You say, who's salvation for? Murderers. There'll be murderers in heaven. There'll be prostitutes in heaven. There'll be addicts, thieves, homosexuals, and liars if they believe in Jesus. Conversely, many of the best people we know will not be in heaven. They will be paying their own sin debt in hell because they didn't have faith. And lastly, saving faith is one faith with three distinct aspects to it. It's one faith. You say, what is saving faith? It understands the facts. Saving faith understands the facts. It's all one faith. This is all one thing. It understands the facts. You say, what are the facts? God is holy I have sinned, I can't go to heaven like that. But God loved, do you believe this by the way? God loved me enough, he sent his son to die on the cross to take away my sin. And then he made this wild promise that whosoever would call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Whosoever will believe in the Lord Jesus, they'll be saved. All that come to Jesus and ask him to save them, he always says yes. So that's the facts. I have have sinned, he's holy, I can't go to heaven on my own, but he loved me, sent Jesus, he did all the work on the cross, Isaiah 53. All I have to do is trust Jesus. That's the fact. You say, well, then I'm saved, man, I'm good to go. Number two, saving faith agrees with God. You say, didn't I already? I understand the facts. No, you got to go to the next step, step. I agree with you, God. I am a sinner. That's called confession. God, I'm a sinner. The whole scale thing, I don't have anything. Nothing I have is going to move the scale at all. And God, I admit it. And oh, by the way, while I'm admitting things to you, God, I admit. I believe what you said about Jesus. He is your son and his death on the cross is enough. I believe that. Okay. Are you saved? Not yet. you got to trust Jesus. Trust means I choose to receive God's free gift. I choose. That's like, okay, you said you'll do it. So I want it right now, Lord. I'm asking you to save me right now. And that's when that, okay, okay. Well, all right, I said okay. And you trust that he's done it. Would you bow your heads just for a moment?